So we've been working through this series, um, the story of the life of Esther in the king's palace in uh, Persia, King Xerxes. Uh, And I guess a bit of a a recap helps us to understand where we've got to. Esther has ended up in this queen's role, although she was a Jew. She didn't expect to be queen. It wasn't as though she sort of applied for the job. It wasn't even as though she courted the king. Uh, She ended up being literally dragged out of her place and ended up as the queen in a quite remarkable series of events. Uh, And then we find that um, there's two stories which, like every great story, they kind of interweave these two themes. One is the establishment of Queen Esther. The other is the threat to God's people through Haman. We remind ourselves that Haman is an Agagite, and the Agagites have historically been representative of those who are opposed to to God in this world. They opposed God's people throughout time. And we find Haman becomes representative of that ongoing opposition and has decided, because he is so slurred by Mordecai's stand for the living God, decides he's not going to just take it out on Mordecai. He creates a plan to uh, slaughter throughout the empire all of the Jews. So the whole of the Jewish race is at risk. In a sense, what we have from now on is two stories going on. Uh, What is going on in the world, in other words, we see a story that opens up the way various events happen in this world, but one of the things that the narrator is encouraging us to see is that that story going on in the world is, if you like, paralleled, constantly reminding us that God is at work, therefore there is something going on in heaven. Uh, what is going on in relation to God is being worked out in the world. Now, one of the things that we see quite interesting in that particular perspective is already there is a match. Esther is told by Mordecai in the previous chapter. If you weren't able to be here, I encourage you to get onto the website. You can download last week's and you can catch up with where the story's got to. Esther is called by Mordecai. Because you're in the place that you are, you go in and you represent us before the king. That's what we need you to do. We need you to intercede on our behalf. In other words, she's been given, if you like, a kind of a priestly role on behalf of the people on a very earthly level, isn't she? She's been told our salvation potentially depends on your ability to go into the king. Now, she knows, and she's made it very clear, that the idea of going into the king is potentially life-threatening, no less than life-threatening. In fact, she says, I'm going to do it. We're going to fast for three days, and then I will go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. So she's committed to this task, knowing that coming into the presence of the king, um, unacceptable, is potentially death, and yet she goes into the king. At the same time, there is something else going on. 
There is the body of God's people because what Esther calls her people to do through Mordecai is you join me for the next three days in fasting and in prayer and in commitment in worship to God so we collectively go into the presence of the real king, the king in heaven. So there's two parallels going on there, isn't there? God's people are conscious on an earthly level. She's going into the king. In a, if you like, on a heavenly perspective, they collectively are going into the presence of the king in terms of that intercessory um, mourning kind of sackcloth and fasting role that says we give to God the future. We're committed to the idea that our future is in God's hands. So there's that double view. Now, what we see from now on through the rest of the story is that as God's people have gone into the presence of God, uh, what works out is, if you like, it's on an ordinary level. Ordinary in a quite dramatic way. But if you think about it, we've just been worshipping in song a God who we've described as being um, worthy of worship through the through the mountains giving voice to God, through the seas giving voice to God. In other words, the Bible wants to encourage us to see a God who is profoundly worthy of worship from the whole of creation. A God who is um, not limited in any aspect whatsoever. Therefore, do you think that God could work out the salvation of his people in a quite dramatic way? Absolutely. He could bring a supernatural intervention into that court which would completely reverse the whole of the planned destruction of his people. And yet what he does, as we see over these next chapters, is he intervenes through ordinary events. When I say ordinary, I mean through conversations, through words of people, through actions of people. But the, the message behind it is through those words, through those actions, through the things that happen, through somebody having a dream at night, as we will see in, uh, in the next section, we see God at work through ordinary means. I want to encourage you this afternoon to see that in your own lives, in, in our own lives. To have a confidence, to have a, a, a perspective, a way of viewing life which understands God at work, which sees God at work. That actually when it doesn't seem as though there's some sort of dramatic great flash and, and massive intervention, do not think that God is not working in your life and in my life. And perhaps you're in a situation right at the moment where there are certain events which are particularly troubling, particularly challenging, and you feel as if I just need for God to just kind of, you know, just open up the sky and send uh, a thousand angels to break into this situation. Jesus makes it really clear. My father could have laid all of that at my feet. He could have given me all of that as he, was, as he was nailed to a cross. My father could have intervened at any moment 
and reversed the whole of this situation. But I will work out salvation. I will work out these next events in what looks, in human terms, very normal. But the reality is that it is far from that. It is God working. I guess in a sense that encourages us to decide how am I going to view what is going on in my life? How will I decide to see life as it opens up? Will I decide to see life as a series of accidents and events outside of anybody's control? Will I see life as the ongoing confidence that I believe that God is in control? Will I view life as an alternative that everything is down to me? It's down to my decisions. It's down to my interventions. Essentially, I am the one who's in control of my life. There's three ways. We can think that it's a complete set of accidents. Nobody's in control. We can view it with God in control or we can believe that we're in control. I want to suggest that what we're going to see over the next few verses is two of those in action. Two perspectives. One perspective, like in the way that we've already seen, one of the things that this story does for us is it throws up in narrative form a way of looking at life. And we see one way of looking at life in Haman. We see another way of looking at life in Esther. We're going to focus this afternoon on the way Haman responds. Firstly, we see that from his perspective, um, well, it looks as though things are working out, doesn't it? Haman, up to this point, uh, thinks that he is in the pound seat. That's a great place to be. He's in a great place. He's, he's the one who is favored. He's the one who the king has particularly marked out and identified as my right-hand man. Now, just for a moment, let's stop and consider what that actually meant. He is number two in the greatest empire in the world at that point in time. The known world at that point in time. He is number two. The most powerful man in the world considers him to be his right-hand man. We're not talking the kind of role which is, you know, I've been promoted to a level which I never really thought I'd ever achieve. This is a guy who literally has the world at his feet. Nothing in human terms can stop him. I, I... think that that speaks very powerfully into our culture today, doesn't it? In a a culture which is celebrity-driven and at a deeper level, it's more than celebrity, isn't it? It's the idea of security and autonomy. The idea of getting to that point where nothing can derail me. Nothing can derail me. I found it really amusing, I think it was the year before last, Um, Roman Abramovich was planning a holiday on a yacht, one of his yachts, and um, I I think it was in the moored in one of the Black Sea harbors. I might be wrong there. 
but it, one of these sort of mega yachts, millions and millions of pounds worth of yacht. And he'd planned this holiday and everything was uh, in order. And he was due to fly out to get onto his yacht to enjoy uh, his cruise. You know, most people go on a cruise and have to sit at table with complete strangers and, you know, fight for a... Uh, a sun lounger around the pool. I don't think actually Roman Abramovich has that kind of problem. Um, so he's off to his yacht. Uh, and then he, I don't know how the message got through, but he got the message through that actually we've put the wrong fuel in your yacht. Um, have you ever done that? I've done it twice in the space of a month and a half in the same car put petrol into a diesel car twice, same car, not good. Um, it kind of cost a few hundred quid to sort out. $265,000 was the bill for Roman Abramovich to sort out the wrong fuel in his yacht. Now, I guess if we were delayed at the airport, that could really kibosh our plans, couldn't it? But Roman Abramovich, he just decides to go and use one of his other yachts. I'll go and use the one that's in the Mediterranean instead. That's autonomy, isn't it? That's complete liberty. Even a $265,000 wrong fueling of one of my yachts is not going to stop everything. I can just go and use one of my other yachts. The reality at a deeper level, I think there's a whole load of people who are looking at that thinking to be able to be that free in life. However you decide that kind of freedom is measured Maybe it's measured by reaching the point where you make the final payment on your mortgage. Where you actually feel, this roof over my head is now mine. Whatever it is, I think we are all looking, trying to find a way to get to a point where we feel, I'm bulletproof. I'm safe. Haman had reached that point. There is no doubt in in the way that the narrative is written, he had reached that point. He was number two to King Xerxes. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Sorry, yeah, verse 9 of chapter 5. He leaves the palace that day. And he has had just the best news you could imagine. He's... He's he's requested personally by Queen Esther when she has gone into the king and she has asked, she's been asked by the king, you can have anything you want up to half of the kingdom. That's what Esther is offered when she goes into the king. And what she asks for is for the king and Haman to come to a banquet that she has prepared that night. Three people at the banquet. And it says in verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Understatement of the year. (laughs) You think about it. 
Esther is given the choice, given the option to have literally anything she wants. And she says, I'll have a banquet with you and Haman. For me, in other words, in Haman's interpretation of that situation, the most privileged thing that I could receive from you is to spend an evening with you and your best friend, your work colleague, your number one right-hand man. That, that is worth half the kingdom, in other words. Your presence, Haman's presence, that's it. That's everything. And so Haman goes out reading that situation and deciding, wow, I, I have really made it. I have absolutely cracked it. Look at how his relationship is with the king. He defines his relationship with the king, his happiness, his joy and high spirits. He defines how happy he is by how he interprets his relationship with the king. In other words, the purpose of the king being there, effectively, is to satisfy Haman. That's how he reads it. He is a servant of the king. But that servanthood has absolutely no foundation in his thinking whatsoever. He doesn't view himself in that relational context with the king. He views everything in terms of what can I get out of this? What can the king deliver for me? Again, I would say, that speaks powerfully to our culture, doesn't it? Where everything is measured not by relationship that I contribute, but by what I get out of it. What can I get out of this relationship for self-satisfaction? Whether it's a contract, an employment contract. I'll play for this team for 10 million a year. And I love this team. I'm so proud to wear this shirt. I'm so delighted to wear this shirt. It's an honor to wear this shirt with this badge on until another person comes along and offers me 50 million a year. And then my allegiance to that, which I've made such a clear statement to, is of nothing. Because it is not about my servanthood towards that. It is about what that can deliver for me. I want to suggest that exactly that mindset is how many of us go into our relationships with each other. Whether it's marriage relationships, whether it's just fraternal relationships, whatever it is. We go into relationships and our decision is, what can I get out of this relationship? What can this relationship deliver for me? And so we... We are constantly measuring, constantly assessing, constantly considering, is this delivering for me? And if we decide that actually it could deliver much better over here, 
We have every, in, every tendency and every capability to decide I'm going to pull out of this relationship and go and, and enter into relationship over there, whether it's friendship, whether it's relation, whatever it might be. That's our tendency. This is what Haman is doing for us in this story. He's presenting, laid out in front of us in large letters, this is the, our nature. This is what we're like. We measure our relationships not on what I can give to it, but what that relationship can give to me. And at this moment in time, as far as he's concerned, the king and the queen are delivering everything for him. They are the ones who are delivering because it's all about me. I am at the center. And as long as they're delivering, all is well. So life is great when it's going well. That's the first measure that we see in Haman. The second measure that we see is life is bad when I'm reminded of my frailty. How do we see that? Well, look at how that same verse continues. He goes out happy and in high spirits, but... When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. What a fascinating verse that is. What an amazing way that the narrator is just presented before us in one verse, the very nature of humanity. We can be absolutely delighted. We can be overwhelmed. We can think that everything is great. We measure our life. We measure our view of how we are by our feelings. And right at this moment, I feel great. Everything is wonderful. And then within a moment, within a moment, something happens that reminds Haman that at least in the eyes of Mordecai, He's not as important as he thinks he is. That's the problem, isn't it? Mordecai is a, a, a believer. He's the, for those of you who have not kept up with the series up to now, he's Esther's older cousin. He's also a Jew. He's a believer in God, and therefore he will not bow down and worship a human being, which is what Haman demands. Mordecai won't do that. And Haman is absolutely infuriated. What's at the very core of that? I think it works like this. And it's at the very core of the human condition. When I am at the center of all worship, when I am the very point of what is considered valuable, when I decide I am at the center, when it's all going well, that's great. But when something comes along and says, in whatever way, you're actually not as important as you think you are, or you're not as secure as you think you are, or you're not as safe as you think you are, or you're not as well as you think you are, whatever it might be, when we suddenly realize we are vulnerable, we fall apart when I'm at the center. That's Haman's perspective. At a really deep level, I mean really, 
just stop and think about it for a minute. Why should he care what Mordecai does or doesn't do? Why should he care? He's just been invited to a banquet with just the king and the queen. He's at the very pinnacle of the political career. He's rich beyond imagination. And one man who won't bow down to him causes his whole being to fall apart. You know, you want to, if you, want to, if you were father to Haman, you want to sit him down and say, listen, son, just don't worry. Don't worry what people think. Don't, who's, who's Mordecai? Apart from the fact that Mordecai is a representation to Haman that reminds him of that really deep inner insecurity which must exist and will exist when we try to put ourselves at the center. When we put ourselves there and we say, it's all about me, and as long as I'm doing well, everything is well in the world, And we realize we cannot sustain our own needs. We cannot keep ourselves in that place. Whether it's recognition, whether it's security, Mordecai presents to Haman a threat to his own identity, to his own sense of worth and being. So there's the contrast. On the one hand, life is great. On the other hand, there's these little reminders that say, it's not all that great after all. He goes home in high spirits. He's absolutely delighted. In verse 11 and 12, we realize that as he goes home, he just, just put, it all pours out. Verse 11 and 12 says, Haman boasted, he called his family together, his wife, Zeresh, and Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had been elevated, uh, elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. And that, that's it's just great, that, isn't it? Do you know what? I've got everything, but there's something I've got to tell you. It's happened today. I've just got to tell you. Don't you get bored of people like this? Aren't people like this a complete bore? Having said that, I suspect there's a whole load of people who would listen listen to him till the cows came home. Because they are doing exactly the same with Haman as he was doing with the king. They are feeding on the back of what Haman can deliver for them. This vast wealth... He's got a whole load of followers, a whole load of people who hang on his every word. Not because they love him. Not because he's special to them. Not because they're willing servants of Haman. But rather because he is there and he can deliver for them. In other words, he is being used in just the same way as he is using the king and the queen. And he says, and that's not all. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me to go along with the king tomorrow. 
Isn't it great? Isn't it fantastic? On top of all of my wealth, I am in the single most privileged position. Pride comes before a fall. <laughs> hey? Isn't it fantastic? You, you know, a wiser person would maybe be thinking, hmm, why? Why is this happening? Why am I invited? No. He's absolutely taken up, taken up with his own self-importance because his decision in life, his decision in life is to make him the center of his own worship, to make him the center of his own satisfaction, to make him the center of everything that makes him secure or otherwise. In the midst of all of that, in the midst of that huge boasting, ultimately, he isn't satisfied. Look at the way that, look at the way that one incident of Mordecai outside the king's gate has just stuck in his mind. He's gone home and he's, he's paraded to his wife and to all of his entourage. I've got all of this wealth. I'm rich beyond measure. I've been invited by the king and Queen Esther to a banquet tomorrow night. I am in the very, very best place. But all this gives me no satisfaction. Do you know what? Haman screams to our world today. Haman screams to our culture today. We can have everything, but what? We are still not satisfied. The reality is that the world that we live in today you know, when you start talking the way I'm about to, you know that you're getting old. It is a different world from when I were a lad. It just is. You go into the supermarket. It is breathtaking, the range of commodities that are on the shelf in the culture that we live in today. And I know that there will be some people in this room this afternoon who are thinking, you think you had it rough. I remember rationing. For those of you who don't know, just after the war, you had to have a little coupon. You know, you go back, and we are progressing, and we are progressing, and we are progressing in terms of what we have. You know what? You think that you can get your, your kind of, your clever computer program, and with one click of the mouse, you can draw a circle on a screen. That used to take five hours of programming on a Saturday morning. And all it would do is trace a little circle around the screen. We are in a different world. But you know as well as I do that Haman shouts to our society stronger than ever. We can have everything, but we are not satisfied. We are not satisfied. There is a deep problem. 
It gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He's had everything. But one person that doesn't recognize it is enough to turn his stomach. What does that say to us? I think it says to us that it's not just about Mordecai. It says that right deep down we have a real problem. We have a massive problem with our identity. We have a massive problem when we make our own satisfaction the center of our very being. Mordecai uh, is that constant reminder to Haman that he is not that important. Haman, you are not the center. And I'm just a reminder that there is something far more. See, that's what happens when I am on the throne. And what happens when I am on the throne is I want to kill everything that imposes on my ability to be on the throne. That's exactly the suggestion that is made to Haman. Go and build a pole that's 50 cubits tall. There's debate about literally what that means. 50 cubits tall is actually a seven and a half story tall pole. The, the actual uh, practice in uh, Persia was that rather than hanging somebody, they would literally imp- impale people on a pole. And so uh, his wife suggests, well, why don't you just get a pole built that's 50 cubits high, seven and a half stories high, and impale, ask the king to impale Mordecai on that pole, and then you go to the banquet. Kill the thing that challenges you. That is what we want to do again and again and again. But you know what? There is a danger because every now and then we want to kill the thing that we really need to listen to. We want to kill the voice of God. We want to kill that nagging voice that says you are not at the center. We want to kill the things that we really need to listen to. That was Haman's problem. He wanted to kill Mordecai, and yet paradoxically, it is Mordecai that he really needed to listen to. That he is not that important. That he is not the center. And Haman acts for us today as that constant representation that we want to get rid of the things that impose on our centrality of our being. And we don't want to anything. We want to get rid of the things that challenge and we want to make sure that we keep that position of us in that prime role and yet God comes along and he challenges that. Yeah, there's this conversation about effectively, you know, a seven and a half story high pole is a a really, really, if you think about it, it's a hugely tall pole. There is debate about whether what effectively Mordecai's, uh, sorry, Haman's wife was suggesting was go and make a pole a mile high. You know, whether she's using some sort of figurative language, using some sort of hyperbole, which says, you know, go and build a pole that's just so huge. So let's not get hung up about the idea that it's a 50 cubit uh, pole and we start debating, well, you know, was it actually 50 cubits? Does that under... Does that undermine the whole of the story? No, not at all. I think she's just saying, go and build a a huge pole. (laughs) Go and make something that's beyond imagination uh, and just go and get Mordecai slain on it. 
You see, when we're on the throne, there's a major problem. But you know, the purpose of the book of Esther is to present to us alternative ways of seeing life. An alternative perspective. A different way of seeing it. You know, one of the things that we see in Haman is a mirror, I think. We, see, we, we have a mirror in Haman. We don't have a character over there that's really great. You know, the guy that we all boo and hiss when he comes on stage. I don't think we have that quite so much. We have a person who represents the kind of problems of the human condition in its ordinary state. We have the kind of person that represents my desire and your desire for me to be on the throne of my life, for you to be on the throne of your life. We have the kind of person who represents that I will go into every late relationship looking for what I get out of it by nature rather than what I can put into it in exactly the same way as you do. Rather than having somebody who um, is the bad guy over there, we have a representation of human nature. And maybe there's an alternative way of living. That's what Esther is. A different way of approaching, a different paradigm. One of the things that I find so encouraging in the Bible is the way God undermines our way of thinking. Perhaps one of the greatest encouragements is Hebrews chapter 11. I want to encourage you to go and read Hebrews chapter 11 after the service this evening. Contained within Hebrews chapter 11 is a whole load of people who the Bible describes as people of faith. They're people who lived their life in a different way, with a different way of viewing things, a different paradigm, if you like. They viewed life differently. They viewed life in the light of God. Now, one of the hugely encouraging things in that is listed in there is various people who, according to their actions in the Bible, lived very similarly in lots of ways to Haman. In lots of ways. We see in Jacob, who's mentioned in that, we see Jacob, who's a self-centered individual. We see King David, who is a self-centered individual. We see Samson, who is a self-centered individual. And yet, the Bible says that those very people, who in lots of ways exhibit all of those challenges, who exhibit the very challenges that I have in my life and you have in your life, are not people who are categorized as the Haman types. They are categorized as people of faith. I think that's great. Because although they are struggling, although they are challenged by their human nature, they are living their life from a different perspective. Not because they are saying, I'm going to live in a way which makes me acceptable to God, but rather they are living in a way which says, I'm going to trust in God. Because you know there is only one person who has ever come into this world and has ever delivered a life which is worthy. A life which is self-sacrificing. That's Haman's problem. And yet there's only one person who's ever 
delivered it successfully, and that's Jesus. You know, Jesus is the contra-life. He's the life which is lived out in opposition to our human traits. We see reflected in Haman just the kind of life that if God does not stop us, if God does not intervene in our lives, that's just how I'm going to live. And yet what we see in Jesus is somebody who came into this world and delivered purposely and deliberately and absolutely a life of absolute self-sacrifice and what? Servanthood. He served his father. John says that he came in obedience to his father and did all that his father commanded him to do. He came desiring, loving to serve his father in every aspect of life. He didn't come into this world, although he was on the throne in heaven. Philippians 2 tells us that he left all of that behind, came into this world as a lowly servant and served his father during his life in this world. He becomes the life that we are not able to live. We are not able to live. He becomes the life which is successful. He becomes the perfect servant. He becomes the perfect, perfect obedient son. So that rather than saying, he now becomes my, my model for what I've got to achieve... He becomes the one who I trust in but so that by faith I believe that his life becomes the life that is acceptable before God. His life as a replacement for my failing life is the life which God will say I accept and I deliver. I, I, I will give you life for. The end of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, after it's looked at all of these different life different lives of faith, messed up lives, lives that have struggled, and yet none of that struggle is re rela uh, related in Hebrews chapter 11. It's only uh, drawn up positively. It then turns to you and me, the beginning of chapter 12, and it says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In other words, it's saying to us, okay, live a life of faith, trusting in that life of Jesus, but look back. Look at all of these others who have lived in a way which is messed up, failing, and yet they were, they were shaped by that view of the world which is God at the center. God at the center of my life. A life which ultimately is satisfying, which Haman never had. And I will live that life. And then it says, now, because we've got all of these that have gone before, let's just, let's just throw off everything that's going to hinder. What's hindering you in your life from living a life which is like Esther, believing that God is at the center. What's holding you back at this point in time? Is it because you're worried about what other people think of you? Well, that's just like Haman. 
Is it because you're still looking for something to satisfy you? Well, that's just like Haman. Is it because you're still thinking that I've got to create my own security in this world? Well, that's just like Haman. What Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3 says, just get rid of those things that are holding you back. Faith in Jesus Christ is the thing that delivers against all of those. It gives you identity. You can never have taken away from you the fact that you are a child of God. You never can have taken away from you the security for eternity that Jesus brings. Who are you accepted by? You can never have it taken away from you that you are accepted by God. Haman is delighted because he's going into the presence of the king and the queen for one banquet. I'm delighted because God is saying you can spend eternity with me at an endless banquet where I will always be present with you. Not because of what you've done, not because you've constructed it, but because of Jesus. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Who is what? The pioneer and perfecter of faith. What does that mean, the pioneer? The words that you could use there is the, the prototype or the one who has gone before, the initial model, the one who has prepared the way, all of those ideas that come. He is the one who has delivered. Let's trust in Him. Let's believe that His life is the one that's acceptable. Haman is a great big picture for us. And we ignore the picture at our peril.